Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you, more of you than uh, I saw maybe five, ten minutes ago. (laughs) We've said before, it's probably an old adage now that uh, Terra Nova Church is the fastest-growing church from 9 to 9.05 on Sundays in America, except on Daylight Savings Time when it's the fastest-growing church from 9.10 to 9.15. But I'm sure we're not alone in that. And in all seriousness, we're glad to have you with us no matter when you showed up this morning. So a couple things by way of uh, just kind of, well, one thing by way of an announcement this morning, uh, just so that it's on your radar. One thing that we do, we try to do at least once every year is something we call a State of the Church Sunday, where we just kind of do a recap with you guys of where we've been, what we've been doing, what we can celebrate that God has done uh, in and through us over the past year. And then we look ahead to the year ahead and maybe even beyond as to the things that we anticipate might be coming, some of which is known and concrete and some of which is unknown, but we just want to make you guys aware of is on our heart and to be praying with us for. So that is going to be on Sunday, uh, March 26th, not next week, but the following Sunday. And that'll be followed by what we call a town hall style meeting, which is where we'll meet downstairs from about 11 to 12.30 after the service, just for a chance for you guys to interact with us personally as the pastors um, and ask questions primarily. We may be getting into a little bit of more of the financial details for those who are interested in that time, but predominantly that town hall meeting is a place for you to just ask questions. And I'll tell you, um, hopefully it's been helpful to our church family in the past. It certainly has been helpful to the pastors. Um, we think we have a pulse on what's on people's hearts and what questions they have until we get to the town hall meeting. And then all of a sudden, uh, we, we find out a lot more. And sometimes that's even translated into, uh, uh, how God has fed into the pastor's understanding of how to lead the church moving forward. So if you call Terra Nova home, we would ask, please do whatever you can to try to make that Sunday priority to be here. Or at least if you can't be here, um, check out the podcast afterwards so you can be at least aware of what took place and was said during the service. So that'll be two Sundays from now on the 26th. I want to spend a little bit of time in prayer for um, a a fellow uh, like-minded church that we love locally here in Saratoga this morning, um, Adirondack Christian Fellowship, uh, which is just up the road in Wilton, about 10 minutes from here, and Pastor Rick Cohen is the pastor there. He's a good friend, and there's even overlap between members of that congregation um, and our community here that you know from different contexts. We love that church. We love Pastor Rick. He has led a Seder before for us. He has a a Jewish background. He's also preached here a couple times at Terra Nova. So I reached out to him this past week and just asked, hey, how can we be praying for you guys? And he said that they are about to restart their their youth and young adult groups. Now, I don't know if that meant that they were on a hiatus because they didn't have staffing or whatever, or if it's just a seasonal rhythmic thing. But I think what he was expressing was a desire for prayer for their youth and young adults because of how important it is that the next generation grow in the gospel and how challenging that is in our contemporary times. And so let's spend a moment um, praying for Adirondack Christian Fellowship and we'll pray for our own youth um, in our own church uh, because they have the same challenges before them um, as those at Adirondack Christian Fellowship. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are um, a good and faithful God to call your people to yourself and that we can claim to be a part of that as your sons and daughters and as a church family here at Terra Nova, but we are not alone in that. There is solidarity in knowing, Lord, that you have called your people from all ends of the earth um, that gather in their different local contexts today. And so we lift up to you Adirondack Christian Fellowship and Pastor Rick over there 
um, even as right now they were gathered and hearing the word preached and fellowshipping together and ministering to one another. Please bless them this morning. Uh, May Jesus reign supreme in their worship. May he be exalted. May they fall more in love with him. Uh, May you bless their uh, youth and young adult ministries. May you bless the youth and young adults in that congregation. May you grant them the resources spiritually and um, intellectually to be able to combat the lies of the enemy and of uh, the culture that uh, rubs against the grain of all that you stand for in some ways. May you give wisdom to the leaders there uh, to shepherd those children to know and, and those youth to know and to love you in a deeper way. And we pray the same thing for our own here, the precious gifts you've given us of um, our children and our youth in this church. And we pray that this would be a safe haven where truth would reign supreme, Jesus would reign supreme, and that he would um, be seen as he truly is, more to be treasured than anything this world could ever offer. Help us in that endeavor as we pray that you'd help Adirondack Christian Fellowship today and moving forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today, we're going to be picking up in a very, very short mini-series, a three-part series on Sabbath rest. There are two reasons why we decided to do this. One is just um, experientially uh, practicing Sabbath, uh, whether that be a 24-hour period of rest or something shorter than that, but a rhythmic... um, Uh, or cyclical rhythm of rest that we enter into to draw near to God and and seek refreshment. That's become more important uh, to some of the families within this church, certainly those who've been preaching in this series, uh, Madison Wyman last week and his family, Pastor Matt and his family next week, and my family. And it isn't as if, um, it's kind of like been a bit of a rediscovery for us, um, or at least I'll speak for myself here, of Sabbath and its importance. Um, and, it, and I would liken it as an analogy to something like um, eating well, like we all know we should, but there comes a point for some of us in life where all of a sudden like that takes hold, like we, we actually like learn to cook in a way that's healthier or eat healthier foods, and then like all of a sudden we reap the benefits of that, and it's like, wow, why have I not been doing this all along? Um, I think for many of us in here who've grown up in the church anyway, the idea of Sabbath is not a foreign concept, um, but it may be not much more than that for you at this point um, in terms of living into a, a regular Sabbath with purpose. And so for some of your leadership, that's been something that's been reawakened in us, rediscovered or discovered in a deeper way. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to spend three weeks talking about it. The other is that it was a natural kind of segue from where we left off in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. So there the author was talking about a Sabbath rest that um, Jesus brings us. And it wasn't that he was commanding honor the Sabbath, like we'll read today in in the Ten Commandments. It wasn't a literal day of rest that he was calling the people to. He was more saying, Jesus has made this beautiful spiritual rest available to you um, by virtue of what he did on the cross, and a, a true Christian will enter into that and has the privilege of entering into that rest. But very practically, the, the question is, if, as we talked about that week, there is an already and not yet aspect to that, right? There's a way in which we can experience some of that rest now, but it is, it is tainted and made more difficult by virtue of the fact that we live in a broken world. But we look forward to one day fully entering into that rest when we enter God's presence. If there is an already aspect to that, how do we actually engage with that? How do we enter into that now? And practicing Sabbath regularly is one very practical and biblical way for us to do that. And the reason that that is necessary for us is because 
We need to interrupt our lives, our busy lives, in order to be reminded of what's already true. Or as the author of Hebrews has talked about, we may end up drifting into places of disillusionment and despair or even idolatry and unbelief. So, we will not be trying to say in this series, Sabbath is the only way to experience or enter into this rest that Jesus has secured for us, but it is certainly one of the best ways to accomplish this on a regular basis. And we want to teach to that end. Uh, My family has not been practicing in this more intentional way, Sabbath for very long. Um, This past year has been significant in us kind of rediscovering some of that. And even in the last couple of weeks, it's been uh, kind of a deluge of informational growth for me. Um, So I'm not speaking from, not pretending to speak from a place of sustained uh, success in practicing Sabbath individually or as a family. Um, But nonetheless, most weeks when I'm preaching, I'm not preaching from a mastery of whatever is in God's word. I'm preaching faithfully because I need to, often feeling inadequate to do so. And this would be no exception to that. Uh, Nonetheless, it's in the Bible, it's for our good, and it's worth talking about. Before we get into today's focus, which as Pastor Matt alluded to, we'll be talking about how part of Sabbath's purpose is to remember uh, the goodness of God. And so enter into the delight and joy that follows that when we do. Before we get there, I want to actually share from the overflow of some general things uh, that over the past couple of weeks and year that I have uh, relearned or learned about Sabbath that I think will be helpful kind of to set a foundation before we go forward today. Some of this will, be, will seem painfully obvious to those of you who have grown up in the church, but it's still worth saying. So seven different things. Number one, uh, the practice of, uh, or the command to remember the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments that we find in the Old Testament. Secondly, uh, of those, well, let me say this first about the Ten Commandments. In the Old Testament, in the Torah, the first five books, you have 613 laws. The Ten Commandments are a distillation of the most important things of those 613 And then, of course, in the New Testament, when Jesus was asked about, like, you know, what summarizes the law, he boils it down even more and says, love God and love your neighbor, right? So my point is, those Ten Commandments are important because they're actually a distillation of kind of the best and most concise way to say those 613 that God gave his people in the Old Testament. Now, of those Ten Commandments, in the New Testament, only nine of them are explicitly repeated, Remembering the Sabbath is actually not explicitly commanded in the New Testament. That said, it's almost assumed. And as you watch Jesus' life and the life of his disciples, it's something that they acknowledged. It's something that they practiced. It's something that's taken for granted by the Apostle Paul in his letters later in the New Testament. Uh, he He talks about it as if, like, the church is already doing it. So we don't believe that just because it's not mentioned in the New Testament that somehow it's, or explicitly commanded, rather, that it's not important. Number three, you can actually divide the Ten Commandments into basically two parts, the first four and the last six. Remember, the, uh, remembering the Sabbath would be the fourth commandment, okay? So it's in that first grouping. So that first four you could divide into what loving God looks like. Uh, we're told, worship God alone. Have no graven images, things that we make that we worship from God's creation. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, which is talking about um, treating God with reverence and not disrespectfully. And then, of course, remember the Sabbath. And then the latter six is all about what loving your neighbor looks like, honoring your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. 
So what we learn from that about Sabbath, being that it's in that first grouping of four, is it has something to do with worshiping God and fostering love for him. Now, it also kind of sits uniquely between the first three and the last six. It's almost a bridge between those groupings. Um, Sabbath is really about remembering the why of Numbers 1 through 3. Why do we worship God alone? Why is it that we're not to make any graven images? Why should we reverence the name of the Lord? And then remember the Sabbath is all about remembering who we belong to and who we are sustained by. Uh, And so it answers those first three questions. And then what it does is practicing Sabbath regularly as a rhythm in your life begins to recalibrate your heart towards worship of God so that you can flourish in your relationship with others, which are those last six commandments. So it really does serve as kind of this bridge linking together those first three and the last six. Number five, practicing Sabbath doesn't make you a Christian, uh, but it can be a vital means of grace to affirm that reality and to help us grow in God and our relationship with others. Uh, We don't believe at Terra Nova that by virtue of you practicing the Sabbath, that that is a prerequisite to you being saved. It's not something we do to get saved. It's something we do to grow, grow in the grace that God has already made available to you and I. It's similar to other means of grace or spiritual disciplines might be a more familiar term. Bible, reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with others. We would never say that doing those things is what makes you a Christian or that you need to do them to be saved. But that Doing those things strengthens your conviction of what's already true about God and your identity in Christ and serves to refresh you in him. Number six, um, Sabbath in the Bible is presented more as a principle for your soul's health than a prescription of particular days or ways of doing it. Okay, and we'll get into that more as we go on today. But I just look at examples such as Paul when he's talking in the book of Romans about not being judgmental towards Christians who practice the Sabbath on this day or that. That wasn't the point of the Sabbath. Or Jesus in the Gospels talking about how man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. When he was being confronted by the Pharisees for gleaning some weed on the harvest with his disciples, um, working for his food, or healing on the Sabbath. There had to be a correction there that that his contemporaries were missing the principle of Sabbath. Um, And we're too concerned about a certain prescription or way of following the Sabbath. Um, And then just to kind of come full circle to where we started today and to the idea in Hebrews that was our jump off point. Jesus secured rest for us through his death on the cross um, that we can enter into at any time. We can taste God's goodness We can taste his provision, his faithfulness to provide, his salvation at any time. The Apostle Paul says, as we sang earlier, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Or in everything, give thanks, he says. Which must mean that we have reason to rejoice and reason to give thanks, even outside of just an official Sabbath practice. That rest is available to us at all times. Nevertheless, The practice of Sabbath can help us move more effectively um, into the rest of our week in light of that joy, in light of the thanksgiving and reason we have to rejoice. And so that's why we seek to practice it. So with all that in mind as kind of laying a foundation for Sabbath in general, let's turn to our focus of one of the purposes of Sabbath today, which is remembering God's goodness. 
um, or as we began to kind of talk about it last week, delighting in the Lord. Uh, Madison kind of uh, began to unpack for us this four-part definition or way that the Hebrew word Shabbat could be translated into stop, rest, delight, or worship. And our focus this, will, this week will be on that delight aspect of what Sabbath rest is meant to bring us. We'll use Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11 as our base text for today. That's on page 72 um, of your pew Bibles, the hardback ESV Bibles, if you want to turn there or in your own Bible. Um, one of the things, honestly, that was uh, new to me um, was how uh, Sabbath rest, ha- there's these different facets or purposes that these different passages in the Old Testament paint of the purpose of Sabbath rest. Um, well, actually, we'll get into that in a minute. But Exodus chapter 20 covers this angle of the purpose of rest being to remember the goodness of God, whereas last week we talked about remembering God's provision. All right, so Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And if you're able to, I would invite you to stand at this time as we read God's word together. So remember, we are in the uh, Ten Commandments, one of the places in Exodus in which they are listed, and we are looking at the fourth commandment here, the Sabbath. Verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, and here's the reason, in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Father, would you open our eyes to see the wonderful things that your law teaches us about yourself and how we can draw near to you. We cannot do this on your own, on our own. We pray for your help by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I began to say a moment ago, last week, Madison introduced us to one of these facets of the purpose of Sabbath rest. Um, he talked about how that word Shabbat means stop and rest, and that we do so in order to remember God's provision. And we looked at Exodus chapter 16 and this scene of God's people grumbling because they didn't have uh, enough food and they would prefer to go back to Egypt. And God miraculously provides for them this manna in the wilderness. And this whole scene is really a test to see whether they will trust God as their provider. And God calls them to this seventh day of rest um, and just to trust, I will provide for you. And so one of the purposes of Sabbath rest is to remember that God is a faithful provider and to expose in our own hearts where maybe we're not actually trusting in him for that. This week, looking at Exodus 20, there's a different angle on display And that is that we stop and we rest to remember God's goodness. And this is based upon God's own pattern of work and rest that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So it's not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read to you and feel free to turn there if you'd like. Uh, Genesis 131 through chapter 2 verse 3, where uh, the author in Exodus was drawing from in that fourth commandment. 
So Genesis 1, verse 31, says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So here's what Genesis then tells us about the purpose of God's rest, which tells us about the purpose of what Sabbath rest is meant to be for you and I. Three things. Number one, it's intended to remind us of God's goodness. Just before God rested, what did he do in chapter 1 verse 31? He he stepped back and he observed the goodness of what he had made and he declared it all very good. Not just good this time as he had done at the end of each of the other days of creation. He stepped back as he completed what he had done and he called it very good. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews, this wasn't a rest from exhaustion God was entering into. It was a rest from completion. It was a rest of satisfaction and a job well done that he was enjoying at this point. We talked about examples we might be able to relate to, like the completion of building a home or finishing a painting, where at the end of that process, it's not just that you're weary and you need to recover, recover from being tired. Primarily, that kind, the kind of rest you experience is this job of uh, well done, of satisfaction, of now being able to enjoy the fruits of what you've made or the beauty of what's before you. Um, so Sabbath... And stopping to rest on a Sabbath is intended to remind us of God's goodness in this world. And by the way, um, that word tov in in Hebrew for good, this translated good in our Bibles, also uh, can mean beautiful. So when God was testifying to the goodness of what he's made, there was also an element of that where he was expressing um, the beauty of what it is that had been made. So number one, it's intended to remind us of God's goodness. Number two, it's intended to bring us joy. In Genesis 2, verse 3, we're told that God blessed the seventh day. That word blessed in the Hebrew, it means to make happy. It was a happy day. And that's a day now that is set apart for our joy. So it's intended to remind us of God's goodness, intended to bring us joy. And then finally, thirdly, it's intended to bring us refreshment. What happens when we stop and we rest and we remember the goodness of God? Well, it brings refreshment to our souls. And we actually see this of God himself in Exodus thirty-one seventeen. Context here, God is talking about Sabbath rest and listen to what it's, the purpose it served even for him. He says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the purpose of rest for God It was an exclamation of his goodness and of his enjoyment of that, which brought him refreshment. And that's the rest that he invites us into on Sabbath as well. So, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to create the space in the form of a literal Sabbath rest um, to be reminded of these things? Why, if you're a Christian here this morning and you can intellectually assent to the idea that there is a good God who made this world and creation is, is good, it's just tainted by sin. Why isn't that enough to just sustain us from there, knowing that once? Because the default of the broken world that we live in 
works against that vision for the goodness of God's world. Author and pastor uh, Tim Keller says, because the world is filled with ugly things, we need the Sabbath to feed our soul with beauty. Now, I don't think that's a negative view of our world. I think that's just a biblical fact. The Apostle Paul talks about in Colossians 1, the kingdom of darkness that is in this world. Jesus promises that we will encounter tribulation or trouble in this life, which we either experience firsthand or we experience through the constant stream of negativity in the news and in media. It's kind of this immersive experience that we we live with in this world that has so much ugliness as a result of the fall and of sin. Um, Last fall, my family and I had the chance to go and uh, experience the Van Gogh immersive experience down in Schenectady. I don't know if any of you had the chance to see that or have even heard of it. Um, But the culmination of that experience, after you kind of learn about Van Gogh's life, is you step into this this room, not much smaller um, than this one, uh, and three-dimensionally on every wall and the floor um, are Van Gogh's paintings um, in animation um, in vivid detail along with this beautiful music, and you are just immersed in his work, and it's, it's a really profound experience. And it's really hard to, be, to, to think of anything else while you're in that immersive experience. It's so consuming. Now, that's a positive example, but we live in a world that if we're not careful, we can be immersed in the negativity that is due to the brokenness of this world because of sin. And so we have to counteract that. Now, it doesn't end there that there's, you know, a kingdom of darkness and promise of trouble by Jesus. Jesus also told us that he made joy available to us. In John 15, Jesus is instructing us to abide in him. That means remain in him, to almost dwell like you're under the same roof with him. And he says, he tells us this in order that his joy may be in us and that that joy may be full. So we know that there is a promise of joy. We are not left to ourselves in this broken world. But here's the thing. While the ugliness and the sorrow and the pain and the trials that we go through are inevitable and they will happen to us whether we want them to or not, joy has to be a choice. Joy has to be chosen. In fact, the New Testament word for joy, kara, it's used as a noun sometimes, but many times it's used as a verb. Again, Paul uh, talks about rejoice always, right? To the verb form of, of rejoice, or excuse me, of, uh, of the word for joy in the Greek is to rejoice or to joy. It's an action, something we must actually be intentional about or a discipline. In the Bible, joy can be a feeling, uh, that literal feeling of happiness that you can have. Uh, It can be a character trait, such as in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, one of those being joy that's produced in our life where Jesus shines joy through us. But it's also a discipline. I mean, is it not a discipline when Paul commands us, rejoice always? Yeah, because sometimes we don't feel like it. Richard Foster, um, who's the author of one of the seminal works on on the spiritual disciplines, at least the contemporary version, Um, says this. He said, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That's why celebration is a discipline. It's not something that just falls on our head. It's the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. And in regards to Sabbath and its part to play in, in cultivating joy and delight in our life, John Mark Comer, another author and pastor, says, Sabbath is a discipline of celebration and a delivery mechanism for joy. Um, And I just like the way that he puts that. So what does choosing joy actually mean? 
What does that look like? Not so much practically yet, but still kind of theoretically. To choose joy is at least these three things. Number one, to delight in the goodness of God's world. Um, At Terra Nova, many of you are really good at this. You love to be out in creation and nature, whether that's hiking or skiing or mountain biking. Um, To delight in the goodness of God's world is to marvel, to stop long enough to be able to marvel at its complexity, at its diversity, at its adaptability, life's adaptability, pointing to God's brilliance as a designer. To delight in the goodness of God's world is to see beauty that God made for beauty's sake. I remember when we first moved to Saratoga Springs and I went to the track for the first time. It's really the first time I think I'd ever seen thoroughbreds up close and just, man, those are beautiful animals, those horses. Um, And there are so many uh, uh, animals and even, uh, and especially plants, that scientists are still trying to discover, is there any more reason behind why this is so beautiful than just beauty. And of course, a scientist's job is to, is to show that there is a functional reason behind all of that. A lot of times they can't. But even if they can, like with a vibrantly colored flower that a certain insect is drawn to, I have to believe in God's mind. Uh, the first thing he was thinking about is revealing his beauty. And then secondarily, he programmed those insects to be drawn to that particular beautiful color, right? So the first thing it means to choose joy is to delight in the goodness of God's world that is all around us. The second thing it means to choose joy is to delight in the goodness of our own lives in this world. God's goodness toward us is so pervasive that if we try hard enough, we can see it no matter what it is that we're going through. Um, About a year and a half ago when our youngest, uh, Emery Autumn, was born, Uh, She was born with a significant heart defect that had to be treated or else it would uh, very potentially shorten her lifespan. And um, so, of course, we entered into that surgery with all kinds of fear and trepidation. Um, But one thing that we experienced during that time, during that season, was the goodness of God, and particularly through people. Um, I think my wife and I could both uh, say honestly that we've we've never experienced... um, so profoundly God's presence through intercessory prayer, other people interceding for us during that time, um, and seeing answers to prayers of all kinds, not just even in uh, this, the surgery going successfully, but in other ways. Um, people were so uh, loving and caring of us during that time to practically provide. Um, I remember just, uh, we spent several weeks in the NICU when she was first born. Um, there were nurses and doctors there, some who were Christians, some who were not, who showed us the love of God in ways that just really deeply touched my heart, such that I know it's easy to say this because her surgery went well, that even if Emery had passed away, it would not take away objectively from the goodness of God that he had on display in that season. And so one of the ways in which we choose joy is even in the midst of trial and crises and difficulty and pain, we pause long enough to recognize where we do still see God's goodness at work in our lives. And then thirdly, to choose joy is to delight in the goodness of God himself as a person. This one's more personal than even those other two. Both of the prior ones we talked about will feed into this one. Um, But by God's beauty and his good gifts, we can infer things about God. But that's true of Christians and non-Christians. That's called common grace, right? The, The sun shines and the rain falls on both the righteous and the unrighteous. But this one is more personal. To delight in the goodness of God himself is to recognize him as a person who has character 
And his character is most explicit in Scripture and in the Gospel, where God's love is on display through his ultimate sacrifice, giving his son to die for us. And so Sabbath also creates the space for us to be reminded of God's personhood, his goodness, through remembering his grace and his holiness in the Gospel. So that's a little bit about why, uh, what choosing joy means, what that looks like. But how do we do this? How do we practice delight? Or how do we remember God's goodness in the context of Sabbath? We have to create space for this. We have to slow down. And that requires us then to be intentional about putting boundaries around the period of time that we choose to seek this rest in the Lord. And by boundaries, I just mean thoughtfully and intentionally structuring a Sabbath rest to serve its intended design, which is to foster delight and worship in God. Um, Early on, I mentioned that the Bible gives us more principles uh, than prescriptions when it comes to how we go about Sabbathing. So I want to continue that conversation here. And I want to look at a passage in Isaiah 58, where the author here gives us a principle for entering this joy um, in the Lord that requires discernment on our part. Uh, It's going to be different applications for different people. I want you to see that here. So Isaiah 58, verses 13 to 14, you can write that down if you want, revisit it later, or turn there now if you'd like, has this to say about the Sabbath. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, And if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's a condition in this passage. The condition is is conveyed there by the if Um, And that is, if we keep from breaking the Sabbath, if you keep from doing as you please, if you keep from going your own way, then you'll enter into this joy or delight in the Lord. Now, at face value, that might feel restrictive um, and and might suggest to some of you that the Sabbath is what you've always thought it is. It's something that's sedentary and inactive and drab and boring. That's not the point of the author here. Sabbath isn't primarily about prohibitions, but careful consideration of what's going to bring you true delight um, into your soul and to those around you on Sabbath. For example, what might foster true delight um, in God for one person might actually be a distraction or a numbing agent or idolatrous for another person. More specifically, maybe one person going on an outdoor adventure on their Sabbath could actually be breaking the Sabbath or doing as you please or going your own way, as it says, if in fact that person is using it to run away from their problems or escape the things that God is wanting to really deal with in their souls. For another person, that same activity may open the floodgates of reminders of God's goodness to them in this world. The same thing could be said of reading, of food, of entertainment, of various forms of recreation. We actually have to be discerning about which are going to serve the ends, the principles of what Sabbath is designed to do for our souls. One commentary in Isaiah 58 says this, When it comes to Sabbath, Isaiah deals in principles, not directives. What is done on the Lord's day must recognize that it's a holy and special day. It must be conducive to finding true delight. It is not a matter of personal preference, that is, going your own way, or indulgence, that is, doing as you please. So, just, as, uh, just in, in establishing boundaries for Sabbath, um, 
we have to consider what activities or inactivities serve to re-engage our soul in delight. Not just as an end in and of itself, delight for the sake of delight or pleasure for the sake of pleasure, but as a way of counteracting the ugliness in this world and fanning into flame true joy in the Lord. It's going to look different for different people. So one very practical way some people go about this is to create these boundaries for the Sabbath day is to think in advance about your list of I wills and I will nots. What are the things you will do and you won't do on a period of time that you've carved out for Sabbath? Some examples of the I will nots that some of you might choose. Running errands, doing housework, watching TV, reading the news or exposing yourself to that 24-hour cycle of, of negativity in the news. Maybe some of the examples of I wills would be take a nap, spend time praying alone or with your family, feast, eat, eat well with your family and your friends, call a distant family member. The list could go on. It could be long. Um, By the way, these are things that we need to think about before we enter into a a period of Sabbath rest, Um, and it'll probably take some time to fine-tune what things are really helping versus hurting bring us into that true delight in God. Now, even as boundaries shouldn't be primarily thought of as prohibitions, as we talked about, things you can't do, having boundaries in place also doesn't necessarily mean doing no work or no activity on the Sabbath. That's another potentially misleading understanding people have of Sabbath. If we go back to our original text, Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to read verse 10 to you again, which gives kind of the explanation. It says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male, or, uh, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. The point here is not a prohibition of any kind of exertion. Um, in, in ancient Israelite society, no doubt, animals would still need to have been fed and milked. Uh, shepherds still need, would have needed to have tended their flocks. I mean, certainly this is what Jesus confronted the Pharisees about at one point, and he said, would you, uh, you know, uh, would you think that a shepherd would be wrong for, you know, tending to his sheep that's fallen lane or into a ditch, right? Um, Priests would still have had responsibilities to do in the temple. The point isn't no exertion. The point is, to the extent possible, people were to rest from their normal work. One commentary in the passage notes that the intent of Sabbath is more about a change in focus on that day or for that period of time than a ceasing of activity. And I'm just going to read what he has to say because I think it's helpful. The change the Sabbath brings about in one's weekly routine makes it a refreshing day rather than the absence of activity. Indeed, one whose weekly work was essentially sedentary, like a desk job, might be more active physically on the Sabbath than any other time and still completely fulfill its obligations regarding the cessation of labor. This does not mean that any activity on the Sabbath, as long as it would not be one's regular work activity, would be holy. But if one were physically active in pursuit of service to God and or godly service to others, it would be entirely consistent with the Sabbath law to work hard at such sorts of activities and be reasonably worn out by them at the end of the day. And then I love this line, kind of sums it up. To love God is not to have one lazy day a week. Rather, it is to focus on doing his, special, his will specially on one day a week to worship, learn, study, care, and strengthen the spirit. I think he says it well. 
So you'll want to consider then what boundaries to put around your time of Sabbath with the end goal not being prohibitions or ceasing from all activity, but safeguarding that time for those activities that especially bring about a renewed delight in God for you. Um, For the Williams family, some of what that's looked like, the things that we do um, when we practice Sabbath, we try to have a meal together. We, we try to do it from like a Friday night to a Saturday night type thing. I don't think that it has to be a 24-hour period of time. Certainly not for starters. Just start somewhere, even if you can carve out a couple of hours on a Saturday morning. Um, but we try to have a meal together on Friday night where we're all sitting around the table and we're not rushed. Um, that works well because there's no school the next day, so we don't have this nagging you know, like pressure in the back of our minds to get everybody to bed. We will order something to go typically, Augie's to-go works well for us, right around the corner, fairly affordable, and we can usually get two meals out of it so we don't have to cook on Saturday night either. We like to have a special dessert together just to enjoy um, uh, that good gift. We like to listen to audiobooks together. We like to ask each other about our highs and our lows from that week or that day, and then celebrate the things we can in light of God's goodness toward us. And then when the weather's conducive, we like to get outside and, and do outdoor activities. Those are just some examples. Things we try not to do. We try not to cook meals. Listen, this is where it, it requires discretion. For some of you, that may actually be very restful. Some of you may use your gifts and, and, uh, and enter into the, the delight of the Lord by actually serving others with those gifts as you make meals. Uh, but for us, it just creates more of a mess and takes away our margin from being able to do the things uniquely we can do on a Sabbath. Um, we try not to have any extra projects or chores that are stored up and have to be taken care of on that day. Um, we try not to be as engaged on our devices um, or on media. In order to maximize our Sabbath, um, not only do we have to consider the boundaries for within, like how to safeguard the Sabbath itself, I think it's also helpful to consider how you create some boundaries for the other six days of the week that then help your experience of Sabbath rest. And I'm going to give you two different examples of what I mean by that. Um, Sabbath has been a much more positive experience for me and my family when we've been diligent throughout the week with our normal work. Um, When we haven't done things like grocery shopped ahead of time, then we find ourselves doing errands on our Sabbath day. Um, When I haven't cleaned up uh, diligently throughout the week, then I find myself getting preoccupied with cleaning up and organizing the house on the Sabbath thus distracting from the things that are um, more life-giving in in terms of um, breeding that joy and that delight in God. And so it's really important, I think, that we're diligent with our work throughout the rest of the week to set ourselves up well for whatever period of time you can carve out for rest. Interestingly, I found out that when we know we're going to be practicing Sabbath and having that period of time, um, I end up being much more motivated during the week to get all my stuff done. It's a great carrot dangling at the end of the week. It uh, it actually um, kind of, in a good way, forces me to work harder, knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel where I truly can just fall into the rest of the Lord and not feel bad about it because I've been diligent throughout the week. The second thing I would say is that really practicing moderation during the week on the things that you normally would turn to delight for can actually help your delight in Sabbath be that much more magnified. There's a concept psycho, uh, that psychologists will, will use. It's called pleasure stacking um, that I've just found to be true. It's like where you, favor, you save up your, your favorite experiences or, or, um, uh, in, in life or things to do for uh, singular moments or days. Uh, this could be like a special birthday or anniversary or um, a special vacation uh, that you've been planning for. 
And that when you do so, the pleasure is that much greater once you actually arrive at that time to be able to enjoy all those things. Um, What I have found is that when I lack restraint during the week on the things that I normally enjoy, I don't normally uh, enjoy those things to the same degree or very much at all on a, a day of Sabbath rest. There's just something that fosters much deeper gratitude towards God for me in saving up certain pleasures for one day of rest um, rather than just seeking them impulsively throughout the week. Um, So those are two things to consider. What does it look like for you to safeguard your Sabbath day by creating boundaries throughout the rest of the week to ensure that it can truly be a time where you can unabashedly just enter into joy and pleasure in the good gifts of God? So it can be helpful to consider not just boundaries for the Sabbath itself, but for the rest of the week in order to prepare for Sabbath. Final word for today on on this topic. Um, No matter what kinds of boundaries you put in place um, for a Sabbath to try to make sure it's a time that feels restful for you and you can experience delight in God, inevitably you'll experience at some point what some people have termed Sabbath sadness. Um, As we talked about earlier, sorrow is inevitable, and the Sabbath is no exception to that. It's not immune from the experience of living in a broken world. Whether that's because something actually happens to you on the Sabbath itself that brings disappointment, or more likely, because we've suppressed many things during the week that only surface when we've created the time and space for them to begin to come out, and for God to begin to to allow us to process those things and and reveal the sadness in our hearts. And the key in, 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 in those experiences if you practice Sabbath and that happens to you, is not to suppress those things or pretend they're not there, but to bring them to Jesus and to bring them to others and to go through it with him and with them. One author said, I don't remember who in in my study, but he said, delight is not a denial of pain, but it's the determination to move through pain courageously, honestly, and patiently and into joy. And again, this is why joy has to be something that we choose and trust God's going to meet us in the midst of that choice with his goodness and his grace. And also, too, I hope you don't hear that and, and think, well, then if I'm going to experience the same thing I experienced the rest of the week, Sabbath sadness or pain on a Sabbath, well, I might as well just forgo it because, you know, it's just going to be tainted by more hardship anyway. I would actually say it's all the more reason, and, and, and that's why it's wise um, and good to build Sabbath rest as a rhythm rhythm into your life because then you have a time and a place once every seven days to actually be reminded of the goodness and the beauty of God in the midst of your your sorrows and your trials and troubles. And what it also does is it teaches us to uh, delight in God in all seasons, which as we've been saying throughout is biblical. Again, that's what Paul meant when he said rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And why he could say that he was at one point sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, because he learned to delight in God in all seasons. So we need to, and we can learn to rejoice in the midst of sorrow, and practicing Sabbath serves to counteract our sorrow by remembering the goodness of God in this world, in our lives, and in the gospel. Which brings us to communion, which is a picture of God's goodness towards us in in the midst of his greatest sorrow, when he gave his son to die for the sins of the world. And listen, if God's goodness can be seen in the cross, then where can it not be seen? So let's take the next couple of songs to be reminded of the goodness of God in this world, in our lives, and what he did for us on the cross. And let us pray together before we do that.
Father, your word says, through your Son, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is a promise that we want to cling to today. And a promise that we want to hold you to. So many people here are in need of the kind of rest that only Jesus can provide. That hasn't been available, try as they might, through what the world can offer. Many of those things are good gifts that you've given but fall short of you yourself. So Lord, you know where each and every one of us as individuals are on this journey with you. And I just pray that you'd help each, each of us to begin to cultivate rhythms in our life that would provide opportunities for Sabbath rest and to experience the truth that you are a good God and to experience the reality that when we see that and we remember that in the midst of our trials and struggles, there is joy to be had and delight for our souls. We need that, we desire that, and we pray that you would provide that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.